A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome. You are listening to A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen, and today I'm pleased to present 30 on the 30th. This is the 30th episode of my podcast, and it coincides with November 30th, which in the Orthodox Church on the new calendar is the remembrance of the Holy Apostle Andrew. As we might expect, the gospel for this day is about Andrew's call to be an apostle by Jesus. Let's listen to the first chapter of John, verses 35 through 51. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. First of all, we should note that Andrew is identified as one of the disciples of John the Baptist and forerunner, and it is John who indicates Jesus and who identifies him specifically as the Lamb of God. The Greek word for lamb here is amnos, which usually refers to an unblemished animal used for sacrifice. 
In Scripture, the expression Lamb of God is unique to John, and he is picking up on terminology from Isaiah. In verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 53, we hear the following. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's striking about these verses in Isaiah is that three different Hebrew words are used to render what for us is basically the same reality. In English, we hear sheep, lamb, and sheep. However, in the original, the first occurrence, all we like sheep have gone astray, is son, the word generally used for a flock. The second noun, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, is the word she, which can refer to a lamb not specifying its gender. The third occurrence, like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, introduces yet another Hebrew word, Rachel, that is to say a you. In this phrase, Isaiah's suffering servant is presented as one who is like a ewe lamb, that is, a female sheep being led to slaughter and not opening its mouth. In the Septuagint, this third word appears as amnos, that same word John uses when the forerunner speaks about Jesus, twice in chapter 1 of this gospel, once in verse 29 and again in verse 36, which is part of the passage we are discussing. It is fitting that John preaches Jesus specifically as the Lamb of God and uses terminology from Isaiah. In the Gospel of Mark, written earlier than John, Jesus' ministry is presented as the fulfillment of what was written in Isaiah, and it begins with the ministry of Jesus' forerunner, John, who was sent to prepare the way for him. Now, here in the Gospel of John, that same forerunner preaches Jesus specifically as the Lamb of God, Amnostutheo. In his book, The Rise of Scripture, Father Paul Tarazi has noted these three different Hebrew terms that Isaiah uses to talk about the lamb and the sheep in this passage. He's also noted that when Rachel appears in the Old Testament, it most often refers to Rachel, Jacob's wife and the mother of Joseph, the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the two main tribes which make up the biblical kingdom of Israel. A little later in this same passage from John, Jesus will be identified as both the son of Joseph by Philip and the king of Israel by Nathanael. Isaiah's intentional use of the term Rachel in chapter 53 that is, the name of the mother of the children of Israel, and John's picking up on that and applying it to Jesus' sacrificial death is nothing short of a literary knockout. Also significant is that John's preaching of Jesus as the Lamb is directed toward two of his disciples, one of whom is introduced as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It is Andrew, the one with the Greek name, Andreas, that is called first. It is he who then tells Simon Peter about Jesus, saying to him plainly, We have found the Messiah. 
This pattern, someone with the Greek name evangelizing a son of Israel, is repeated in the call of Nathanael by Philip. In verse 45 of John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John also employs a literary device, the repetition three times of words in their original Hebrew-Aramaic forms, and then he tells us how those words are rendered when translated into Greek. With this repetition in this specific device, the text is reinforcing the mission of the gospel to both Jews and non-Jews. This is also reflected in the fact that Philip is said to be from Bethsaida, which is called the city of Andrew and Peter. Although John doesn't translate it here, Bethsaida means village of hunting and fishing. Thus, the brotherhood of Andrew and Peter, and of Philip and all the apostles, emphasizes that the apostolic mission to catch men is directed toward all nations. John will revisit this teaching forcefully at the end of his gospel in the post-resurrection passage where we hear that the fishing nets were full but not broken. When Andrew and the other of John's disciples ask Jesus where he is staying, he responds, come and see. In English, this same expression is repeated verbatim a few verses later when Nathaniel asks Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This repetition deserves some attention. In the Gospel of John, at least three different Greek words are used to render the verb to see. In verse 39, when the disciples of John go to where Jesus is staying, it says that they saw where he abides. The verb used here for see is idin, and it literally means to see in order to worship. This is also the word the forerunner uses when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, in verse 36. Later, in chapter 12, following the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the spreading of the news about that event, we hear about certain Greeks who wish to see Jesus. It is also said of them that they came up to worship at the feast. The close proximity here of those terms to worship proskeno, and to see, idin, reveals one of John's literary motifs. Throughout his gospel, seeing is equated with believing. Although he doesn't use idin systematically, there is an indication early on in John's gospel of a connection between what is heard and what is seen. In the prologue, in the very first verse, we hear about the word, that is to say, something that is spoken and is thus to be heard, and that it was in the beginning. Then in verse 14 we hear, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Literarily, here there is a movement. What had been spoken or uttered thus becomes also something to behold with the eyes. Hearing is transformed into seeing. The Greek word used here is not idin. This word conveys a sense of looking or gazing upon. Still, with the shift in the text from merely hearing to looking at that which is heard, 
John is preparing us for Edhin, which we will encounter shortly. We might say that in his prologue, John introduces the possibility of seeing in order to worship. The connection between seeing and believing, as in worshiping, is at its clearest in chapter 9, where Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. When he afterward asks the man, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answers, saying, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then in verse 38 we hear, Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This passage about the blind man receiving his sight is bracketed between Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, in chapter 8, verse 12, and his statement at the end of chapter 9 that he has come for judgment. Here, the condemnation is on those who see but refuse to believe. Once again, this echoes Isaiah, whom John will reference in chapter 12 against those Jews who did not believe Jesus' words. In verses 39 and 40, we hear, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see Edhin with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. So often in Scripture, people marvel, they are amazed, they even stumble over what they see. Not having heard or understood the prophets, they seek signs and wonders. In the Gospels, Jesus says an evil generation seeks after a sign, and he directs those seeking to the sign of Jonah. In other words, to the basic scriptural teaching on the need to hear and repent. In a recent blog about St. John Chrysostom, Blaise Webster, a fellow podcaster on the Ephesus School Network, writes that hearing in Scripture has greater importance than seeing, and the reason is that the eyes are deceptive and prone to idolatry. What people see before them, they tend to want to worship. Blaze reminds us how even Paul had to be blinded and have the scales removed from his eyes to faithfully receive the gospel message. Clearly, we see this demonstrated throughout Scripture. In both Matthew and Luke, Jesus, speaking about John the Baptist, asks the crowds, What did you go out to see? And he repeats that question three times. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. It's ironic that Jesus asks about what the people went out to see in reference to John, who is a prophet. A prophet offers nothing to see, but only words to hear and obey. About John, Jesus even adds that he is the fulfillment of what was written in Isaiah. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's Luke chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. In his association of seeing with believing, 
John seems to break with the other Gospels in their systematic priority of hearing overseeing. This is understandable given that he is writing later than both Mark and Luke. For John, the author of Revelation, there's a stronger sense of urgency to accept the Gospel, since historically, persecution as a consequence for belief is now a real threat. The evangelist makes the connection for his hearers between seeing and believing, but only under the condition that seeing is preceded by a word, be it spoken or written, and that what follows is true worship. That's the sense of the verb idin that we mentioned earlier, and John only employs it in certain instances. At the end of his gospel, he will remind us that blessedness comes from believing in spite of not having seen, which is to say, through the hearing of faith. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's chapter 20, verse 29. And it is in this way that Andrew, the first called of Jesus' disciples, comes to believe. By hearing the word spoken by John the forerunner, It is only after first hearing the word and then following that Andrew and the other disciple of John were able to see Ithin, where Jesus was staying, that is, to see in order to worship. Similarly, all of us who are called are offered the opportunity to, first of all, hear what is written and to believe on the basis of that. Let's conclude by hearing verses 30 and 31 of the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that concludes this episode of A Light to the Nations. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I thank you for your support which so far has enabled me to produce 30 episodes. Be sure to check out Blaze's article. You can find a link to that, as well as notes on a few of the words and references in the show notes. I wish you all a blessed remembrance of the Holy Apostle Andrew, and I look forward to meeting again in two weeks.